It comes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger stranger out of the Quick meditation to the shrubs. Okay. Good. I'm good. Are you good? <laughs> I don't How know. Are you? I'm uh, on the shores. <laughs> to the shores. <laughs> to the shores. Hmm. Well, welcome everybody. We're here. We're doing it. We got a fancy new shores of ignorance. Uh, uh, I don't even know what you call that. <laughs> Logo. Logo. Up. Yeah, up on the wall. Yeah. So. If you're just listening, check out the video. Yeah. You can watch it on Spotify or YouTube. Mm-hmm. And we got our logo up. It's kind of fun. It feels <laughs> very fun. official. I know. I feel like we're growing up so much in the last six, three months, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. well, we're on the back half of life. Mm-hmm. We both lost our father in the last year. Yeah. We got to grow up finally. <laughs> Sometime. Sometime. <laughs> I mean, I think that's something I, I was thinking about this week was just like, what am I, what am I doing with my life? Kind of like one of those types mm-hmm. of, types of questions. So and, what are they, are, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> well, I think I answer that question differently at different stages of my life. And I think there's a part too of losing and discovering things that you, that were important to you that you've kind of lost and kind of discovering them again. Hmm almost for the first time, but in a new way, because you're not that same person that, Mm. uh, you had those maybe aspirations beforehand. Yeah. As you said that, that I totally had that experience recently, but why don't you start? What did you lose and then recover? Well, I think (laughs) it was kind of during the pandemic that, uh, I think kind of like squashed it out of me, just kind Mm. of, you know, you don't like not having people to talk to or interact with and you're trying to have a, a least amount of contact with as many people as you can. Right. And it just seemed like that was a, um, that was just sort of the way things went. And, you know, people also were, you didn't know exactly where people stood and you're super hyper aware of how people felt about, you know, the situations, whether it's, you know, George like social Floyd, situations, social situations, yeah you know, distancing, partying, you know, how you're going to interact and what mm-hmm. people are comfortable with. And, uh, something that I, I saw that I lost this last week was there was something I really enjoyed doing and something that through the, through the coffee shop specifically is like, for me, there's this, there's this little spark that everybody has and it's, mm. it's finding that little spark. And sometimes it's like, it's from the wear of tear of day or, you know, just the, the troubles of life or whatever it is. Or, you know, some people just are very cantankerous in general. Uh, but I always enjoyed finding that little spark. And then when you put your finger on that little spark, they just come alive, mm-hmm. you know. And that was something that I always enjoyed kind of finding that in each person. You are really good at that. Yeah. In social situations. Uh. As much as I know you hate social situations. <laughs> <laughs> you can talk to anybody and find the thing that makes them mm. want to talk. Yeah. You know, that makes them come alive. It's really a beautiful thing to watch. That's cool. <laughs> I, I'm not very good at it. Yeah. I've, I have noticed that about you over the years though, and, and tried to, tried to learn from your ways and <laughs> emulate you. <laughs> My pet one. Come. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's the way you put that, that the pandemic squashed it out of you. Mm-hmm. I feel like, those first 
really two years, 2020 and 2021, squashed Mm. a lot out of a lot of people. Yeah. And it did feel like that, like a squashing, Mm -hmm. like the whole... The whole thing had a weight to it that was just bearing down on you. Yeah. You know, it was it was social, it was health related, it was fear related, it was economic, mm-hmm. it was some of your favorite businesses closing, some of your favorite people maybe dying or not coming to visit, and mm-hmm. the humanity was squashed out of us. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's interesting too, seeing how that time was different for different people. Because I also saw a lot of people looking at their future and asking, what do I want of that? Mm. And a lot of people made decisions to change, you know, change gears and head a different direction. You know, I lost lost a lot of people in that same way, you know, going back to school or switching careers completely out of coffee. And there was a lot of, I think, soul searching. Um, But for me, it was mostly staying alive, keeping the business thriving taking care of people. And I didn't have a lot of time to reflect on, Mm. you know, what does the future look like when I was just trying to keep everything together as is and take care of all these people. And, and I didn't have time to really, um, reflect. And so I kind of feel, and it might have been more so with your dad passing that Mm. listening back on, you know, what your dad said during our interview, your dad always had a great way of kind of listening and pulling things out of you. And I think that was kind of a, a little bit of a trigger for me the last couple of weeks, kind Mm -hmm. of like, all right, well, what do I want? What do I want this next, you know, 20, 30 years or five years to look like? Mm. So that's kind of the questions I I had. I think it's interesting that you said that during those years of the pandemic, you didn't have as much time to reflect, Mm -hmm. which is maybe counterintuitive because we were locked down, right? Like mm-hmm. we were spending a lot more time at home, a lot less time out doing things, yeah. which would make you think that you would have more time to reflect. Mm-hmm. But maybe reflection actually requires to have time to reflect, requires that you spend time out in the world doing something hmm. so that you have something to reflect on. Mm-hmm. And maybe another reason for feeling like you couldn't reflect th- during those years is just a sense of, well, it isn't real. There's not much of a point in thinking about or planning for the future when the next week is completely unknown. Mm-hmm. There's no stability, you know? Yeah. Don't know if we're going to go out of business. Don't know if lockdown's going to end. Don't know if we're going to be safe from COVID. So mm-hmm. you just like, you're very myopic in your, <laughs> in your thinking. And so you're mm-hmm. not reflecting. Yeah. Because there's not much to reflect on. <clears throat> no, I mean, that's, that's very true. Uh, and I also kind of just realized this too. Whenever I was uh, playing softball with my uh, oldest daughters, it was her last game of her senior year, and it's super fun. Their the other team didn't show up, so we went out there. The parents went out there and played the the kids. Um, and I I forget about that. Like some getting out of your normal mm. makes things new. Like you get a new perspective. You know, they always say that you know if you get yeah. stuck, go for a run. You know, and that kind of, that kind of things, but. There's something about getting out of your normal, which I'm so, I have such like sort of rigid things I do. <laughs> and it's just really healthy for me to get out of my normal. And That's a beautiful different. observation to, to be confronted with the unknowns that happen in life. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to go play this baseball game. The other team doesn't show up for some reason or another. Mm-hmm. And then to respond to that situation. Mm-hmm. 
to say, well, what if the parents play? Mm-hmm. That you was know, super fun. If too. you never plan to play the baseball game in the first place, you don't mm-hmm. ever reach the point of that unknown mm-hmm. that calls you to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And that's like an act of creativity and an act of, well, that's an act of humanity mm-hmm. is to respond to what calls. Yeah. It's the same thing with travel too. It puts you in a different environment, yeah. a different place that you you have to you have to be a little bit more aware of where what you're what you're doing, where you're going, and you don't really know what's going to happen the next day because it's unfamiliar. And that's something that is I think helps, you know, when when we used to go to marathon or we just didn't do it this year, but there's something about getting out of our normal that kind of opens up new insights and, and a time to reflect or cause you're not, you're not bogged down from the things that are always around you, right. the, the reminders of responsibility and, um, yeah, uh, we'll have to <clears throat> resume our shores of ignorance yeah. yearly trip. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For that reason, when you talked about travel and this, this whole thing made me think about something that I was reflecting on last night, just, mm. and it's been three weeks since my father passed away and the world feels like a different place to me. Hmm. And I started having this thought and I'll just see if I can work it out with you, Mm -hmm. which is everything seems somehow more meaningful. Hmm. And that's not the right word, but it's a good starting place. The feeling reminded me of when I used to go to summer camp Mm -hmm. in, in like junior high. First couple of years I went away to summer camp. I was alone or on my own, you mm-hmm. know, couldn't really call mom and dad. We would write letters, but I had to make sense of things mm-hmm. for myself. I had to make decisions for myself. I had to go interact with people, strangers, both adults and kids and decide how to navigate that and then come home and or back to the cabin and sleep on it, you know, mm-hmm. and wake up and think, how do I want to be today? Yeah. Which is a contrast to the way that you are when you're growing up in your parents' house, Mm -hmm. because your life is sort of inside of theirs and they're speaking into it and reflecting on it with you and guiding you, giving advice, giving feedback all of the time. Like, Mm -hmm. don't, don't do that. Don't hit your sister or, um, don't get that tattoo. (laughs) You really need to clean up your clothes Mm -hmm. before you go to bed, something like that. Yeah. And there's a there's a meaning making mechanism in that mm. that I think you take for granted in a certain way until you're outside of it. It's the same with travel. There's mm-hmm. so many things in your life you take for granted until you go travel mm. and everything's new and everything's different. Especially a foreign country. Like right. just going to the grocery store is a huge adventure. Yeah. Oh, they call us that smur here. And it means, butter, you know? it means something <laughs> mm-hmm. to go to the grocery store when you're in Paris. Mm-hmm. Whereas you go to the grocery store in your hometown in Austin, mm-hmm. it, that's an errand. Yeah. You know, but when you go in a foreign country, it's more of an adventure. Mm-hmm. It means more somehow. And some, there's some feeling that's akin to that in me, which mm-hmm. is that I'm at summer camp now. Mm. I can't call my dad. I can't work through things with him. Mm-hmm. Can't ask him for his advice. I've got to make my decisions mm-hmm. and they're mine. And suddenly everything, everything is brighter. I don't mean better. I mean, I see more 
Mm-hmm. Because I'm constantly aware of like, okay, I've got to move through this. Whether it's a conversation with one of my kids or a um, a problem up at the school with them or something at work or something in relationship that I would always talk through with my dad mm. before making any serious moves. And now I just have to navigate that. And so everything is sort of like hyper in focus and I'm hyper vigilant to the way that I'm thinking about things and the way that I'm interacting with things because I kind of have to get it right hmm. or the, the meaning making structure, the mattering structure like, of which my dad was a part has changed, which changed structure underneath me. Let me ask you this question. Uh, you might not be able to answer this right now, but it would be interesting to get your thoughts on even after this. Because as you were saying that, I kind of started seeing different moments in life. So like, so you left home to go to college. You've talked about a little bit that on, on the pod. But then you also left your parents and got married mm-hmm. and had a kid. Yeah. You know, and then you also lived in Austin away from them. And there's like, there's certain parts that you, you're kind of defining your own life and your own rhythms and your own ways, you know, and I'm sure there's some other ones in between that. But then I think another huge thing would be the loss of your parents. And you can kind of see, I would say, what in any one of those instances, do did you ever feel a shift? I kind of, the, the word I want to throw in here is like, I became a man when, hmm. and that might I, not be I the right word. Reflect, no, but, well, yeah. well, I was going to say that okay. actually, because I don't remember if I said it this way on the last, on last week's episode where we really kind of focused on the passing of my father, but mm-hmm. it seems this might be too simplistic to choose just two instances, but it seems like the second of the two biggest events that will happen in my life. Hmm. The first being the birth of my son. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The second being the death of my father. Mm-hmm. I feel like the birth of my son made me a father. The death of my father made me a man. Hmm. Yeah. Sort of almost the, the cliche, the, the head of the house now, you know, there's like a certain changing of the guard too, as mm-hmm. far as who the, who's kind of leading the McCloskey clan into the future kind of thing, you yeah. know, and it doesn't have to necessarily be the oldest or, you know, I think, but, but hitting that space where now you are the elders, right. You know, obviously your mom's still with us and, and she's part of that elder, but there's that losing one or the other parent kind of like mm-hmm. you start to almost see that transition. Cause I was also thinking about, I mean, Allison's going to outlive me. So <laughs> that's pretty much everybody in her family's like 92 and a hundred thousand, something like that. hundred thousand. Oh yeah. They're old. Uh, uh, but I was also thinking about older people that are like in their late nineties and everybody has died mm. except for them. Mm-hmm. And what that would, what that would feel like, like, you know, that sort of my whole circle that I've, that I've sort of walked through life with has passed away and that's a whole nother stage of life. We don't have to worry about that right now, but <laughs> no, I think that would be really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, there is some amount of paradox in me or conflict in me about when I would like to die. Oh, really? How so? <laughs> well, 
you know, I don't really want to die. So part of me thinks, you know, I want to live into my 90s. Hmm. And then another part of me thinks that sounds horrific hmm. and exhausting and full, so full of so much loss and degradation of body. And I don't want it, you know. Hmm. But at what point, I may, may you can't answer this, but is there, a, is there sort of a lie in the sand that you draw as far as, I don't want to be dead. I don't want to be alive if I'm like this. Mm. <clears throat> I think the the really the only thing that I'm concerned about losing is my cognitive faculties. Mm. If those start to go, I I can't imagine <laughs> enjoying that. Mm-hmm. But then again, if if they're going, do you are you really even aware of it? Mm-hmm. And watching some of my grandparents um, decline into dementia and Alzheimer's. That was so terribly difficult mm. on those of us taking care of them. Mm-hmm. That's hard. Yeah, that's kind of one thing with my dad. He, he died at 75. And a part of me was very thankful in a sense. I mean, I wish there would have been more years, but also that it wasn't a five to seven years of mm-hmm. dementia. Like, mm-hmm. I know my dad would not have liked that. Yeah. And they even have. I mean, I think there's a certain amount as you get older, you need to accept the help of your children. And that's something that you, it's a, it's a humbling thing mm-hmm. <laughs> that I think is necessary as you get older. But I know my dad would not have wanted to burden us with something like that. Right. And so I, part of me is thankful, you know, it went as fast as it did for him at the very end, you know, but. Yeah. I have that feeling about my dad too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for him, it was instant. Mm-hmm. No one saw it coming, and I was really upset about that at first, and then I thought, there's another way to look at that, which is that, as you said, I wish I had more years, Mm -hmm. but I'm glad that he was happy and healthy Mm. to the moment that he left, and that there Mm -hmm. wasn't some period of time in which he wasn't happy and healthy. Mm -hmm. And that's, there's something of a, a blessing in that. Mm -hmm. I was talking to my dad's friend, Tom, um, and he called it a severe mercy. Hmm. It's really hard, but there's also a mercy in it. And it's, I, I feel at least somewhat thankful for that. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to talk about it like in that, in these sort of terms, because, you know, the, the, the question is, without a doubt, would you like to have had more years? The answer is yes. Yes. And there's there's no scenario in which I would not say yes to that. Mm-hmm. At yeah. least with, you know. Outside my, suffering or whatever. My parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want all the years with them I can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I got 40 with my dad. And I feel kind of robbed, but those were good years. Mm-hmm. And 40 a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's really. Does does losing your and this might be too soon too, but does does losing your dad make you think of death any differently, or have you just your own sort of like grappling and with what that means and mm. that your time here? Obviously, this might be too soon of a question. So I think it might be mm-hmm. for me to give much of an answer to that. No, I don't think I have thought too much about that. Mm-hmm. I think I've mostly just been living a bit in the past, just thinking of memories mm. of, of my dad and still somewhat in shock mm-hmm. that 
this current reality is actual reality. Yeah. <clears throat> Sometimes I ask the questions too soon. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You can ask me any questions you want. <laughs> yeah. So all of that was something of a response to here we are on this precipice mm. looking at a new stage in life you were starting to ask yourself, well, what am I doing and what do I want? Mm. Where do I want to go? <clears throat> Maybe instead of me asking you what the answer to that question is, mm -hmm. I'd like to know how do you approach a question like that? How do you <sighs> grapple it? How do you make work of it in order to k come by an answer? That's, the, that's a very, very good question. Uh, it kind of is in two different, two different spaces. One is sort of a kind of an, an awareness of, or, or trying to understand what I want, whether it's good or bad or what I think I want. I think those are some of the things I've kind of been working through. And it's interesting as I keep going through the things I want and again, this is within the last two weeks with your dad passing, but that part with uh, everything is relational and personal. Mm -hmm. And then I kept, so I kept coming to these things that I wanted. And I was like, but what for? Mm -hmm. Like, I would like to make more money, but what for? And it was interesting that most of the time when I chased those answers down, it was a relational aspect. Like, I would love to be able to take my kids and have travel with them and have moments with them and mm -hmm. show them, you know, and teach them things that I have gotten the, you know, had the privilege to be able to experience and know and to pass that on to them. And it also made me a little bit sad that, you know, with Elia just starting our own business and many, many years of just struggle and struggle and struggle, you know, I, I can just see her kind of missing out on some of the benefits of our latter, latter years of maybe even having a little bit more financial ability to do those things. Ellie is your oldest. Oh, Ellie is my oldest yeah, and she's graduating this year. Uh, she's an amazing human being. Hmm. Um, but to really get into that question, it becomes more religious for me, honestly. And I say that in a loose term, it might not be the right word for it, but I, the reason I say it that way is it's like religious language mm -hmm. starts to kind of come into it. Uh, you can maybe say it's spiritual are ethereal, um, just because there's something that you're trying to grab onto that it's not necessarily logical. You know, what do you want in life? What do you, where do you want to be? You know, it's not something like, well, I'd like to achieve these goals. It's like, but what for and why? Yeah. And so I don't know if I'm prepared to go all the way into that, but that, I, those are the two things that kind of like, that kind of stood out to me is whenever I'm starting to get in, engaged in this type of inquiry, I kind of automatically almost start praying, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Not mm -hmm. a traditional sense maybe, but that's the only word I could really say is because I'm not looking for an answer. It's like, it's more of a, um, something that's a little bit more, hmm. It's, 
it's sort of like a nudging or a, an intuition that you sort of st- start to kind of build into you and then it fleshes out into something but you're you're looking for something that's kind of bubbling up like an, like a, a vapor or or mm. uh, you start whiffing something and then you start moving towards it and i find that the way that i get to that space is more through what i would say traditionally we call prayer or openness to mm-hmm. other you know and uh, openness to God or, or however, you, however you want to say that, there's something that I've found over the years that opening yourself up to that kind of helps you get a better understanding of that sort of what you want because it's not money, it's not a bigger house, it's not a car. There's all these things, but it's what for. So, I don't know. So, That's pretty maybe, vague. <laughs> well, maybe part of the answer to what you're describing as religious language is like a very simple exercise that you can do, which is that you can ask yourself a question Mm -hmm. like, what do you want? And sort of legitimately not know the answer Mm -hmm. and all contained within yourself, at least it's how you experience it. Maybe you can answer yourself Mm -hmm. or you could sit down and ask yourself, what am I doing wrong in my life? That if I changed my life would get better. Mm -hmm. And yourself can answer that. And it isn't like you already know the answer. It's almost like there's two parts of you. You can have a conversation with yourself. And what do you do with that? Mm. So when you're praying, it's sort of like that, but your attention is not simply on yourself, but on something else. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's something going on that's at work there. And I think that's when you start to need something like religious language, something like prayer. Mm. We've talked about this before, but an exercise I like to do is to write a conversation down Mm. and assign the other person in the conversation a symbol. Mm -hmm. So I'll write Matt colon, and then I'll begin a conversation. And I'm not saying I'm inventing a conversation like I'm writing a piece of fiction. I'm asking questions that I legitimately want to know the answers to. Mm. And those become some of the most moving and productive pieces of writing that I do in my journal. Mm. So what is that? Am I praying? Is that God responding to me? Is there some part of me that I don't understand that exists in some spiritual place that I don't have full-time access to? Mm -hmm. Whatever the answers to those are, I think that the empirical experiential evidence for the the existence of that to me seems undeniable. Mm-hmm. And as you were talking about, you know, the conversation you're having internally about what you want and what you want for the future is something like prayer. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking something you and I have, we did once was we, we were just sitting out on the back patio mm-hmm. um, post podcast one night, I think. And we sort of imagined that our, Uh, like 90 year olds or 80 year old selves were sitting across from us and we sort of had this conversation with them. And I Uh think, well, what is that? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't know your 80 year old self, but you know something of him Mm -hmm. and you understand the direction that you're moving in the places you hope to be. Mm. And you can have a conversation with your older self and and that can be productive. And then I was thinking, so I shared this clip with you, somebody on Instagram or something talking about how every person has two parents Mm -hmm. without fail. Mm -hmm. Right. And each of your 
two parents has two parents, so you have four grandparents, and each of them have two parents, so you have what, eight great grandparents. If you go back ten generations, there were four thousand people involved in bringing you into existence. Mm. Just ten generations. Yeah. And can you imagine? Like you have kids, you have all these hopes, fears, desires, longings. What is the collective hope and the collective fear of 4,000 people for their offspring hanging over you? Hmm. What, what is that? And that seems, well, something like a spirit. Like, what is the spirit of all of those people hmm. and all of that procreation that led down to a single point, which is you? Mm-hmm. And could you talk to it? That's probably probably part of the first <clears throat> uh, religious aspects were you know talking to your ancestors was a a very primal totally uh, religion it's depicted in mm-hmm. in what would you say Many stories books. yeah Iliad all the time yeah mm-hmm. yeah I mean even as recently as the movie Avatar well there's something that that so, so I think that's where you get to the sort of prayer or the or having a conversation with God is sort of if you extrapolate all those types of ideas into one thing, that's where you have God. And but again, it's like there's something about talking to your ancestors, like like so your you know your dad's passed away. There's something about having a conversation with him, even though he has passed on. That's still like it opens something else in you mm-hmm. because there's there's a sort of honesty you have because you know your father knows you. And so you cannot lie to your dad Mm. because your dad will know that you're lying to him. Mm. So there's a certain honesty you have when you talk to your ancestors that, um, that, that is embedded in the, in the conversation where like, you know, like if I died and you were having a conversation with me, it would be different because I don't know you in the same way that your dad knew you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I think, I mean, that. so then you kind of extrapolate these ideas when you think of like a God who <clears throat> knows you completely and loves you and, and whatever the tenets that you might believe in that. But there's sort of like a, a you're opening yourself and laying yourself bare and, um, and there's a sort of honesty and truth that sort of inhabits that space where if you were to have a conversation with, I just pick a random person, Sam, <laughs> you're like, hey, Sam. You know, you have no relational aspect mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to that person, so that there's a very low level of of vulnerability and and truth. Seems that like comes a really it. similar statement to what we were saying earlier about like you couldn't reflect during the pandemic, and maybe part of that is well, you weren't out in the world being relational. Mm. It takes you have to be in relationship to reflect. Mm-hmm. There isn't anything else to reflect on really, except mm-hmm. for relationship and. So if you don't know someone, you're you're not going to strike up a conversation about it and, and like have a productive conversation about answering the question, what do I want for my future? Mm-hmm. Because Sam doesn't know you. Yeah. And you would have a very different conversation about that with me than you would with Allison, your wife, mm-hmm. and a very different conversation than you would have with Elia mm-hmm. or your youngest, Hazel. Mm-hmm. But those conversations are predicated on the relationship. Yeah. And just talking to a stranger is a much different thing. 
Super fascinating. I, I would love to be able to unpack this more. I feel like I'm just kind of stumbling around a little bit in this area, but it does like what you're what you're saying. The whole relational aspect and being able to like how that draws something out of you. And I think we talked about it a couple times where um, maybe it was a couple episodes back, but just even the idea of, of truth when you're seeking after truth, it's like, there's a sort of, if falsehood comes in, it's, it's something that you almost have to willingly sell yourself to it. If that makes sense. Like, mm. so if you're, well, I, I've always, again, this is, this is a, one of those, it's kind of more of a metaphor, but it's like when you try honey for the first time, you're like, whoa, that's so sweet. And then someone gives you something that's not honey. They're like, hey, this is honey. You're like, no, that's that's not honey. And you go years without it. But you know it's just something that, that the taste and it really kind of opened your eyes. And, and then you come across something, you're like, oh, I, that's it. Whatever that was, what was that that you just gave me? And you're it kind of like, I mm-hmm. kind of see the same thing about truth is that is that same sort of, once you taste it, and it's also whenever in a relationship, when you're when you're in a relationship with people or someone who knows you really well, mm. you you know what that closeness of relationship is, and then you start to measure other relationships. And you're too not really that. fooled by any counterfeits. Mm-hmm. And they say that a lot about uh, specifically with women, uh, with men, is if they have if daughters have good relationships with their with their fathers, they can kind of spot. Um, men that are predatory or have false motives a lot better because they know what it is to be loved and, uh, uh, cared for. Mm. And it's like very healthy and useful. They know what it is to be loved. Mm -hmm. They couldn't tell you, but they could tell you when someone's not doing it. Mm -hmm. So much of we know of what we know we can't articulate. Mm-hmm. And I think in modern post-enlightenment intellectual land, and this is Ian McGilchrist's whole mm. thesis, right? Like yeah. we have this arrogance, this left brain arrogance that mm. thinks that we know what we know and we know how to articulate it. And that's not true at all. It's so not true. And it even comes into the whole idea of like procedural, episodic, and semantic mm-hmm. memory. So, you know, semantic memory is more of our philosophical language, scientific language, you know, how we engage with rationality. But that's such like a, it's so up here. And, you know, you know, then you have episodic, which is more like story oriented, your myths, your religion and that kind of stuff. And your procedural memory is almost more like lizard brain type of stuff. Like, you know how to ride a bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's, there's so much more hidden and deeper in this episodic, in the, in the, uh, in the procedural memory, mm-hmm. semantic memory is just surface Right. You know, and, and I think other most, there's a lot of people have been able to dive in and be able to extrapolate some really amazing nuggets that are then able to communicate it. But so much of our, I think even dad talked about was so much of our life is below the waterline. Yeah. You know, we don't even know what's in there until somebody calls it out of us or a situation we're put in that, that 
kind of we rise to the occasion. Hmm. Well, it's part of the analogy of our show too. <laughs> True, <laughs> the shores of ignorance. Uh, hmm. the, the water represents what you don't know, mm-hmm. and everything that you don't know is under that surface. Mm-hmm. And learning it can be a dangerous encounter. Hmm. You can drown. But you can enter those waters. You can try. Well, even kind of coming back to the idea of prayer, like I, I see prayer as a sort of a movement into the unknown, into those waters, and sort of extrapolating something known out of that space. Mm-hmm. And it's almost as if it kind of reveals, uh, you know, people even talk about this in meditation too, is when you kind of like, move into that sort of unknown space and allow some of the baggage to kind of come off of you, you know, new things sort of reveal themselves to you. But it's like making the space. And also there's a little bit of humility and submission to the unknown. And I think without submission to the unknown, there's there's not a lot that you... What does that mean, submission to the unknown? It's sort of an acknowledgement that... I don't know as I should know. Sounds like humility. Humility and also even a confession, you know, mm. that, you know, I think even like, uh, yeah, it's even a confession as far as I've been acting in the world in such a way. I do not know any different. Show me, show me how I fall short. You know, there's that kind of a confession of I fall short. Um, Again, I think that's why it's hard for me when I move into this area. It's hard not to use religious language because you're going below the waterline. You're moving into the episodic, into the procedural, and trying to bring it into that semantic memory in order then to communicate what you sort of drew out of the well. But somehow, somehow that you have to open yourself up to that um, more ethereal space, you know, whether, whether you're on the shores looking out onto the the ocean and the chaos and the unknown. Mm. I was trying to find, um, something that I wrote. I don't know that I can do this justice, but you used that word confession. Mm. Would you say you confess to the unknown? You confess to what you don't know. Mm -hmm. You confess that it exists something I I wrote and it was part of a, just a little poem almost is confession requires a choice to no longer be alone. Hmm. And there's something that's on your heart or your mind. It could be guilt. It could be love or crush. It could be all kinds of things. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it screams at you Hmm. and you don't want to share it because maybe you don't want it to be true. You don't want it to be real. But to confess it is to no longer be alone with that. And that struck me as such a beautiful idea. Well, confession requires at least two. Yeah. You know, the confessor and the confessee. And, you know, even whether you're shoot, you're shouting it out into the universe, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's something about that verbal... Um, 
exercise or um, ritual that does help kind of move you into a, a different space. Yeah. Well, again, it's relational. Mm-hmm. To move into a different space, you have to relate with someone else. And that might be a person. Well, so I think it's always a person. It might be a living person or it might be someone who's gone, might be God. Mm -hmm. But it requires confession and it requires relationship. See, it's super interesting whenever I, when I get to this space, because like, I think I, I don't, I don't probably talk about this in this way as publicly, you know, more of the, the prayer and the, and the God stuff, because I kind of tend to be, I, I like to be more in the semantical being able to explain things, you know, as far right. as like, well, Hey, here's an exercise, you know, have a conversation with yourself and write it down, you know? like there's something you can do and this therefore this but but when you kind of take it that next step like you were saying is like i'm doing this exercise but it's actually making me aware of something outside of this exercise there's something there's like a a, again for lack of a better word a spirit that i'm Mm -hmm. accessing what is that spirit inside me or is this uh, my subconscious somewhere but where you're kind of starting to acknowledge it's not just about doing the exercise you know that is 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 creating something and maybe that's too woo-woo i don't know but i i I tend to think you have to kind of go into the woo-woo a little bit to be able to access the unknown because if you start to put too many parameters around what is real and what is not real in order to gain understanding then i find that you limit yourself drastically because you're basically declaring that you know what's best and you know what is real. Mm -hmm. And there's something about whenever you step into the unknown, you're kind of, you you actually are confessing is like, I don't know what's real. I don't know. I don't know what I'm stepping into. You know, even like someone who's sort of saying, well, we're just animals or just me chemistry. And we do these things, (laughs) you know, obviously that's a way over simple, simplified answer. It's like, okay, have fun with that. <laughs> yeah. But I've, I, but for me, I've found that there's, there's a whole nother level to this and whether I'm fooling myself, that's, that's something else, but I find something meaningful and saying, I don't really know what is real. But when we come back to the whole, the whole thing, when, of like, you, when you say what is real, are you thinking of something like God, like is God real? And you're saying that kind of thing. You're like, I don't know. Oh yeah, I, I, this is a really good point to clarify, and it's something that you and I've talked about a lot. I think on this podcast, but there's there's kind of this paradox of I know who I am, and I also don't know who I am, mm-hmm. and I find and it's a paradox, and you have to kind of be in that in between space as far as like, um, and and sometimes you're more in like okay, I know who I am. And there's this, there's this comfortable and confident aspect of that too, and so but when you're starting to talk about the future and the things you don't know you start to have to kind of acknowledge and move into, I don't know who I am. That's sort of, that's sort of like that swing. And I think there's, and there's just vulnerability and sort of like the sort of the, the city walls and the city that you've built, everything starts to kind of come into question. And why did I build it this way? 
is this wall really necessary here? And you start to go out into the wilderness, into the wild, where you don't have the protection of your city walls. I know this is all metaphor, but I don't think you can get to that without using metaphor or mm -hmm. using religious language. Because if you just stick to sort of a very strict logic-based <clears throat> system of your own making, for the most part, you're not going to really know what's out there. It, it makes me think of the adventurer who goes out and has these great adventures and brings things back, and everyone's like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And But mm -hmm. they're, they're not really interested in that the actual adventure. They rather stay in their little safe walls in the reality that they know and understand um, than to venture out and but that's dangerous out there. You know, you're going to get things wrong. You might, you might believe something is one way when it's actually not. And, uh, reality tends to tell you that. <laughs> Am I being too, uh, <laughs> too metaphoric? <laughs> well, that's the word I wanted to hone in on. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me like the existence of metaphor proves something mm -hmm. because if you, if you have a worldview, which is well, I'm me and you're you and I know me and you know you and that's really all there is to it. <clears throat> then as humanity progresses, as time goes on, you would need metaphor less and less. Hmm. And yet, as people get older, I think they need metaphor more and more. <sighs> yeah. Because you become aware of something that you can only access through metaphor. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a his um, C.S. Lewis wrote a space trilogy, mm -hmm. the first of which I think is called Out of the Silent Planet. It's a beautiful series of books. Uh, highly recommend. But he makes the point in the book, and it's been long enough that I've read it that I can't give you the context of when this occurs in the book. But he makes the point that there are symbolic things which is a similar thing to say that there are metaphorical things. Mm -hmm. There are symbols. There are symbolic things. And we know that there is meaning in those things, which means that there is something beyond our ability to comprehend, our ability to understand. Mm -hmm. And we know that's the case because those symbols retain meaning despite our best efforts at extracting it and articulating it, giving it names, giving it proofs, they remain symbolic mm -hmm. and there's no shortage of symbolic things in life and even symbols and um, icons for that matter. But th the fact that you simply need, you cannot go without it. Mm -hmm. Metaphor. If you want to explain to somebody how you love them, mm. people are not going to stop writing love songs. No one has figured it out yet. Right? Mm -hmm. And what do we do? We use metaphor. Mm -hmm. And we do it because I am not just me, and I'm not just a collection of information. I'm a person. I live and engage in the world relationally. And the truth is relational. Mm -hmm. The truth isn't, isn't factual. I mean, I think a question like, is God real? You know, it's like Christian versus atheist, let's say. Mm -hmm. I think that that misframes the answer as something like, 
a fact. Hmm. And I don't think that if there is a God that you can evaluate that truth on a factual basis. It has to be evaluated on a relational basis. I, I, I think I know where you're going with this, but I also want to kind of... This is the first time that thought occurred to me, yeah, so I don't know if I that know, made any sense. <laughs> well, I, I, I love that you're, that you're heading this direction. I think... Because I would tend to agree with you, but but as you were talking about it, I was like, but why? Like, that sounds a little bit, it's relational. Like, how is, how can, how can that, how can you, well, again, it's like, you don't, you don't have any personal, we'll say, so you have a bunch of facts and then you, you, we all sort of weave those facts into a story. Like, what are these facts telling me? You know, the facts in and of themselves don't tell me anything. You, that you have to then embed them in a story. Like, okay, hey, all these things mean this. I, that's the point I'm making, which okay. is to say that without the st- your word, the mm-hmm. story, which I'm going to replace with relationship. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Because a story is... Things interacting in relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're saying facts are meaningless unless they're in a, engaged in a story. Mm-hmm. And I think, yes. Okay. We live a story. We live relationally. And if there's a God, then we can only, then that only matters relationally. Mm-hmm. And so you either take a position that relates with God mm-hmm. or you don't. To say whether or not, to try to establish a fact of the fact of God's existence is just as meaningless as a single fact in isolation. Or even if you talk about like, you know, climate change, it doesn't really matter what you believe on on this or how, how, to what extent. I don't want to, that's not the part I'm getting into is, but say we see this fact that, you know, earth's temperature is rising by one degree every three decades. It doesn't matter what the actual thing is. Well, the only reason why that matters to you is what that means. It's in relation to you and your existence. Mm -hmm. To the earth, it doesn't really matter. It's going to be here way beyond (laughs) our existence. But it matters because it's embedded in the story and you you are or us are a part of that story. And so we're, we're, we're creating the story around that fact matters because of we want to continue to exist here on this planet. <laughs> well, and even on a more local local time scale, mm. I think it matters to people, to the activists which take up climate change as their, mm-hmm. um, you know, primary issue. Mm-hmm. It matters to them because of the story that surrounds that and the character that they get to play in it. Mm. It, it in and that is in some sense a, a very small religious epic. There's hmm. the sort of virginal, um, ravage, virginal mother nature who is oppressed and ravaged by a mankind which is selfish mm-hmm. and narcissistic, mm-hmm. and it allows you to place yourself in the position of hero, hmm. savior. And there's a lot of power in that. Mm. 
just even personally for your sort of mental well-being that gives you a purpose, something to care about, something for which to move into the next day. I mean, that story is very religious in that they are also like the prophet in a sense, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's like uh, Jonah and with Nineveh. He's like, he's like, hey, repent, or you're going to go to, you know, it's like mm-hmm. the, your town's going to be demolished. You know, right. it's it's just a it's a modern day sort of Nineveh almost kind of uh, parallel. What we know, mm-hmm. however you want to, you know, take that. But I think I'm taking the story way out of. <laughs> well, I, I, I would just say make... the, the climate thing's a little bit more complex. I'm, I'm using it in a very simple. Yeah, uh, and I think the the thing I'm trying to thing. extract out of that is that. For everybody involved in the climate change discussion, Mm -hmm. it is the story that matters there. Mm. It isn't the facts. Mm -hmm. And you can use those facts to tell quite a few different stories. Mm -hmm. And I think, okay, well, is that a depressing thing? You can take the facts and tell quite a few different stories. Mm. You know, okay, whatever's factually true about religion... You know, maybe it doesn't matter. You're choosing to tell a certain story with it. Hmm. And I am making the claim that truth is relational, not factual. So how do you evaluate one truth against the other? So like if you take something like climate change, how do I evaluate those who say, well, the story is essentially we're going to ruin Earth and we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. And that's one side of the debate. The other side side of the debate is, yeah, there's the climate's probably changing, but it's probably not a big deal, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to be okay. It's like, okay, those are two different stories, same set of facts. How do you evaluate which one is the better story? Mm-hmm. And I think in some sense, and you might do the same game between religions, mm-hmm. or religion and atheism, let's say. Um, and maybe... The answer to that is you evaluate the story based upon what part it's asking you to play. Hmm. Is it asking you to play a part that calls you forward into into the best version of yourself in love? Hmm. And into the future. And into the future. And, you know, if I look, just take those two, I'll just take... The climate change and religion and atheism. Mm-hmm. The one side saying we're all going to die. They're also saying, and so you must give me all of your money and you must stop doing all of these things that I tell you to stop doing. And you must elect me to office mm-hmm. and give me all the power. Otherwise, you're all going to die. Mm-hmm. And the question is, does that call me forward into the best version of myself? No. I think on the other side of that debate, people are saying, yes, there's probably some issues and you need to be conscious and aware and innovative and creative and solve problems for Mm -hmm. the good of yourself and for those around you. And I think, well, that sounds more like that's calling me forward into being the best version of myself Mm -hmm. as opposed to the other side that feels a bit like slavery. Mm. And then if I look at religion and atheism, Christian religion at least, you know, the Christian religion, it's sort of a a searing rebuke on humanity, but then a very 
short story that says, yep, you're beyond saving by the law, and yet I've removed that obstacle. Go be who you are now. Mm -hmm. That does seem to call me forward into something better than I already am. Whereas atheism says, you are only who you feel inside. There is no transcendent future. It's every man for himself. I hear that story and I think, well, that's, that's a lot to deal with. I, I feel kind of anxious about that. I feel lesser about that. I don't know how to pair that with the experiences I have, mm. such as <clears throat> I get older and I need more metaphor. I feel like I can talk to myself. I feel like I can talk to my future self. I feel like I can talk to my past self. How do you explain that? Mm -hmm. it, at least it points at something which is much bigger than what I feel like is contained within my current present self. And what is bigger than me? There, ha there has to be something bigger than me. Otherwise, half of my experiences seem to be invalidated. Mm. So maybe that's a... In this sort of hypothesis that the truth is relational and not factual. So what do you do with it? You relate with it. And so how can you, how can you judge one story against another? Maybe that was a, what is that word? Heuristic. Hmm. Well, it's interesting too. Uh, you, you also see another element too, is that, uh, is there's, I think anybody, everybody can agree on what we understand today will not be, it's, it's, it's understandable today and it's useful, but a hundred years from now, we will look back on ourselves today and, and say, Oh, how cute. So I don't think everyone would agree. I mean, it, I would, I would, that I, would be really hard pressed because, you know, you look back a hundred years, you would, they, we would say that about those people a hundred years ago, those people a hundred years before them would say the exact same thing. So I would say it's hubris that you, I would say that to anybody who said that is like that, that you would not think of that. If the people a hundred years from now will look back on us today and say, that's cute. I think that there is something going on in society and culture right now, which actually thinks that it has arrived at the right answers. Hmm. And they don't think that. I don't think that they think people in a hundred years are going to look back hmm. and say, you know, look back at our current policies and values and not think about them in the way that we think about bloodletting in medical practice. And I totally think that away about a lot of our prescription drugs right now that we'll look back and see, Oh wow. We're actually like yeah. harming ourselves yeah. more than we were actually helping ourselves. Sorry. I was a little bit of a side note there. Totally. <laughs> hmm. But there's, a, there's an element of this too, cause I don't want to be too hard on it is that it's useful today. It's the best that we have. I think that's what we're always dealing with is like, what is the best that I have today? And, and that's the part of story making is you even see this with the Israelites going through, you know, from Genesis to Malachi. It's not that they, God said, Hey, this is who I am. It's more of a revealing 
over thousands and thousands and thousands of years of this character, mm-hmm. the God of the Hebrews. And so I think that's a really great example of even humanity in general is that it's easy to look back and, and shame those who have come before us. But at the same time, we're existing in a world where we have enough information to make good decisions. But we also should have the humility to know that we're also lacking. And I think that's the, I think that's what makes good leaders is I'm going to move forward in this direction with the information that I have. And this is my honest, uh, honest movement towards something because I want is what is good and what is better. And then, you know, maybe it'll change in five or six years from now. And then you should be able to, to switch gears and, and move into that direction. To make good decisions requires humility. Mm-hmm. Just like you know yourself, yet you don't know yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to be humble to the fact that you're wrong about a lot of things. And, you're, and maybe some of the things that you're right about, you're right in the wrong way. Mm, true, yeah. And maybe you're as right as you can be, but five years from now you mm. realize that that was wrong. Mm-hmm. So you have to face your decisions with humility. Yeah, I'm go and and that is to use a religious phrase. It's like you have to almost make your decisions with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. What is it? Work out your or faith some, with yeah. fear and trembling, mm-hmm. which means yeah, you should be afraid of what you don't know and don't understand, mm-hmm. and you should be afraid of being wrong, but you shouldn't cower in fear, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't freeze and and not act mm-hmm. that isn't any good. Yeah. So you make decisions, walk forward in your trembling and and with fear because you are humble enough to admit to confess to the unknown. Mm-hmm. Submit to the unknown as you said sort of toward the the beginning. Yeah. And say I'm going to dive in and it's going to be dangerous and mm-hmm. I might get it wrong. I might get it right. I might get it as right as I can. And then that's still not enough, but acting is better than inaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inaction is cowardice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's, there's just no way around it is we have to make a decision. We have to move forward into the future yeah. and to not do that is death. Basically it's like you will die slowly Hmm. Like in, like just inside, if you don't move into the future with some sort of a, a confidence too, you know, it's like, it's like, because you're also saying is there is something to be known. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move into the future. There is a future to move into. And I'm going to make a decision and I'm moving into that future and I might be wrong, but you know what? I'd rather move into the future where I am wrong and I learn that I'm wrong so that I can make a better decision. And I think that's, I think that's the courageous thing in life. And people that inspire me are those who make a decision, move into the future and find out they're either wrong or they got a little bit right or, you know, but they're course correcting. Mm. And you learn, learn something you didn't know, mm-hmm. which is to also learn that there was something you didn't know, mm-hmm. 
which is also to adopt a more proper position of humility. Mm. Yeah. And that will help you make better decisions. Hmm. I love how so many of the themes of episode two with my dad and then our conversation last week where we replayed some of those clips and then this conversation tonight, they've been three very different conversations, but Hmm. there's been sort of these like nodes of overlap Mm -hmm. where we're kind of hitting back on the same ideas from a different angle. And I think that's really beautiful. think we ought to do it leave it there yeah yeah that's great was yeah well thank you guys for coming out to the shores this is uh super fun and uh yeah did hope you, you got something out of it <laughs> I, I did I mean, I'm, I'm a weaker <laughs> it's hilarious even if uh, in etymologics I'm like <laughs> <laughs> I did an accidental simultaneous left right link. I don't know what that is <laughs> there we go cheers cheers <laughs> love you all out there thanks for listening I'm <laughs> <laughs>